Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in this episode? In this episode, we are sitting down with an old friend and fellow social studies teacher to discuss the Equal Rights Amendment. Hello and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 12, The Equal Rights Amendment. Brooke and I are joined by my friend and history teacher, Mary Bezpachenko, who wrote her thesis on the Equal Rights Amendment. Mary, it's so nice to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you so much for taking some time on a Sunday night to hang with us. No problem. I'm excited. I'm a fan of your guys', so I'm excited. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) All right, so full story, Kelsey won't stop talking about you and her friend Mary. (laughs) And so we've been talking about having you on the pod for a while and I'm so excited you're here. Um, But I need the full story. How did you guys meet? How are you and Kelsey friends? Well, Kelsey and I met, we both um, were teachers with students who got selected to do the National History Day, what is it, the Normandy Institute. Yeah, Albert H. Small Normandy Institute. Yeah, it had a long name. And what was, 2014? Uh, 2016, I think. Okay, I was gonna say I couldn't remember exactly, but it's, it's been a while. while. <laughs> it's been a while since we have seen each other too. Um, but we had students who who got selected to do this, and it was a National History Day program where you you picked a soldier from your home state um, who was killed in the Normandy campaign. And so we spent a whole year like researching the students, or the, the soldier's life and learning about D-Day and then did a week at Mar- University of Maryland, kind of more in-depth research. And Kelsey and I were roommates. So we shared wow. a song. <laughs> That's so fun. So Mary, what state do you teach in currently? So I am from Ohio. So I'm kind of uh, in Columbus, Ohio. So right in the center, kind of a suburb area outside the city. So is it a big school, small school? Tell us a little bit about it. It is a growing school is what I would say. (laughs) Um, It's one of the fastest growing districts in central Ohio. So we have a pretty large school. We have about, I want to say 1,300 kids at the high school. And so you're a history teacher. I am. I am in the social studies department. I teach a a college credit, um, American history, and then uh, AP government. And so what was the... um the soldier that you guys picked to get you into this project? Mm-hmm. Um, his name was uh, William Barton. And he, we, unfortunately, we didn't find, there really wasn't that much information about our guy too much, which the, the reason why my student um, who I went with, he picked him and he, he specifically wanted to pick a private because he said, I want to pick somebody that's just an average person, you know, like that, you normally wouldn't learn anything about. So he picked like an average person. Your student was so awesome. I just love that. Like the mindset there is so cool. Exactly. It's so Spencer, so Spencer. Um, But yeah, so he just kind of picked an average, you know, guy. And so we didn't end up finding tons specifically on him. Um, But there was a sad story for him is that the one that we, like the one personal story we could find about him so he was killed um, not on actual D-Day. He was killed. So after they, of course, took the beaches, then they had to make their way to 
to Paris. And that took what, like a little over a month or so, I think, to like push through and make it to kind of actually make the break for Paris. So he was killed in one of the battles um, kind of after they took the beaches. And he, it was, I think he was like his first day in combat and he was, he was killed. So he was killed on July 4th, but the, you know, it took some time to like, you know, they, they sent home the information to his parents. And the one story we found about him is they didn't share it with his mom because his mom was dying and they didn't want her to know that her son had been killed while she herself was kind of on her way out so she died like two weeks later or something so and he was an only child too so then I feel you know tough for his dad not only did he lose his son but also his wife kind of in the span of a month so so sad story there but our guy we researched Kenneth Day from New Hampshire and he he similarly had some well, he also survived D-Day itself, made it, and and I think he died July or June 14th, so in a battle further inland. Um, and But he, he similarly had kind of a sad family story, and I think on a Women's History podcast, your story about his mom dying back home is kind of cool. Um, and our guy had written, he was injured in Italy, actually, and, and was back in Britain, like, recovering before D-Day happened. And he sent his mom a letter saying, like, I think I'm coming home, you know, like, see you soon. And Yikes. come to find out he's being shipped to Normandy. And um, his parents end up splitting after, after D-Day, you know, because yeah. they, like, you know, couldn't couldn't cope with their well, son's actually death. actually is like a really high statistic of people who lose a child. It's like, yeah, there's, I don't know what the yeah. number, but it's very high that they usually divorce. Cause they yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. That was a really amazing experience. Well, that's kind of, it's kind of been, I mean, that was so amazing. I, it really was fascinating. And then initially I've done a couple other things with them and, um, I feel like it's a little bit of a theme as far as the mom goes. So I ended up doing their World War One trip for teachers. So it was just teachers, which was a little nice, you know, to have the, the kid aspect, the student aspect there. Oh, yeah. but you can have alcohol? Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I um, researched a, he was a pilot. So it was like early, you know, early planes in World War One, and, and he was killed, but his mom ended up being one of the like gold star moms that they actually, they took, groups of gold star moms to the cemeteries about a year after the war ended to go visit, you know, their, um, the other son's grave. And, um, that was one thing they talked a lot about is about how much the French took care of the Americans graves was like a big, they almost looked at them as like, these are our, like, you know, like our boys because they died here kind of saving us. So they had been taking care of their graves and, but, um, there's a great picture that we found of his mom kind of standing by his grave over in Paris or over in France. And I just find it weird. Cause then it was like, I, you know, it was a you know, similar pose where you stand next to it and you put your, like she had her, her hand on the top of the cross of his grave. And then we all took, you know, I, I have a picture, a similar picture of me then, you know, standing there at his grave. And it was just, it was, That's bizarre. Weird, but I was glad. I mean, like how, like, just thinking for these moms, what a nice thing that was for them to offer to take them over there for this, these trips. And they did a series of these trips 
Um, because how hard would that be if your child, you know, is buried over someplace, somewhere else? So. I, that would be awful. Also, I, like, I guess that's why they went there is to help. And But I don't know. I'd want my son home. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, what is it, like, 40% got shipped home? Is that um, yeah. right? Or something yeah. Like that? Yeah. They, 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 exhumed, they exhumed a lot of bodies and brought them back. Yeah. They, yeah, they gave them the choice. You know, do you want your son to stay there or do you want to bring him home? Yeah. And I, that part for me of the whole trip was the hardest part because I, knowing how many people were brought back, how many people survived, right? I was not anticipating the number of graves that we saw. And yeah. the last day, it kind of hit me. I think similar to you with your, you know, your standing hand on the grave it hit me like I fi- I couldn't remember if any of the family members we interviewed had actually come to France to wow. see. And so it hit me that my student and I were the first people to come to see his grave specifically. And that, I don't know, it, it felt like we were leaving a family member at the time, <laughs> even though like I never clearly met this person. <laughs> No, but I you agree. Post your research, I'm sure. You yeah. Know, similarly to the story you were just telling, Mary, you know, it's like it sounds like you really get invested when you're digging into these people's pasts and their families, and it's not a story that you know, isn't close to home. Like you can really put yourself in their shoes to think about this happening and how you would feel. Um, mm-hmm. Which is the cool part about being history teachers, I think, for the both of you, is you can very much tell those narratives that can get kids excited because it's easier for them to put themselves there the more detail you guys provide. Oh, yeah. Really cool. that and the trip. fact that you get to go. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Being the places where they were was, like, really cool. I mean, just them. so real. That's wild. And I will say, I, I um, am not a huge war history person. And I always have to, like, preface that to, like, my students because, you know, <laughs> when they get to, like – Civil War, whatever they like, want to you know, you have you always have kids that like want to talk battles and strategy, and, and I'm like, oh, I just don't. That's just not my thing. Um, I just what don't you consider your thing, Mary, as a teacher. I like I like social history. Okay. So, like social movements are kind of You're what doing. I find most what interesting. Talking about today, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So interesting. So yeah, it's like I or even for wars, I don't mind like like learning like the build up to it or and the effects of it. But the actual war itself, I've never really been super interested in. But through like the programs, like like the history programs, what I found is when I can make a personal connection like that. Um, and learn stories about the people who were fighting, then I actually, then those, even like the battles seem more interesting to me. Or, so I feel know. like World War II is a really great but odd transition into the ERA. Um, so we'll make it though, because okay. I feel like World War II, in terms of social history, transforms American society. Because you're taking... Um, a whole bunch of men, you're shipping them off to war, as well as women who are involved as wax, as rosies, as all sorts of things back home. And, um, and then the war is over. Everybody comes back. People say, go back to your normal gender norms. Mm-hmm. And 
moms, gold star moms are empowered to be like, wait a second. And I just lost my son. Like, I'm not going back to normal. Women are like, I'm not giving up my job. And some of them are giving up their job because they feel like it's their patriotic duty to give it to a soldier. Um, But other people are like, getting a paycheck was kind of nice. (laughs) A lot of them have need independence now. Their spouse may not be coming back. So it's like, no, 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 I can't give my job up. I'm the breadwinner now. Right. So... So I think it's not, to me, it's not surprising that following World War II, we have civil rights movement, women's rights movement, and all these groups saying we're not going back to the pre-war world. Well, and I even think, Amy, it's like they came back and I think there was that, you know, like the brief period I always talked about to the kids about the 1950s. It's like when people look back, it looks so great. Oh, the 1950s was so great. But for a lot of people, so I think there was a time where everybody was like, oh, let's kind of shoehorn ourselves back into more of the norm. And then people quickly realize I don't like the norm anymore. Like I'm not okay with the norm anymore. Let's, you know, like let's change this. So yeah, I think you get, you could get kind of a period in the early fifties where it's like everybody tries to conform and then it just explodes from there. Yeah. Like once you, you, it's like, what's that snake in a can? You can't put it back in. You can't put it back. <laughs> toothpaste in a bottle. It's what out. Are, what are the good metaphors? <laughs> I know none. <laughs> Those are all good. I, I think good, good. Yeah. Okay. But before we get to the ERA, we want to mm-hmm. ask you kind of the topical question that we ask everybody, which is, uh, why are women left out of history class? And you're a history teacher. I'm a history teacher. I know that I leave women out all the time. So why, why do we leave women out of history? Um, I think there's a variety of ways you could go with this. <laughs> I think there's so many different things that come together to like, you know, end up with the left left out. I think um, to begin with, just even to begin with, is the fact that for a long time, like just historians in general were men and they focused in on their what they're interested in or they focus from the point of view of, um, because I don't think even like social history was, you know, for a long time, it, it wasn't really looked into. And of course, for, that's where women's roles were the largest for a, a long time was more in the social realm. And that wasn't considered to be as important history, I guess, as wars and politics and, you know, things that were women were kept out of. So if you're kept out of the place that people are considering to be the most important thing, you're not going to be showing up in the history books about it. And then just even from the the perspective of there just wasn't um, as many like female historians then writing history. So if you are writing about what you know and what you're interested in, you're going to get guys writing about guys probably and women writing about women. So if there's not a lot of women writing or at least, or even just maybe they weren't being published, you know, because that could be the thing too, is they just weren't being published out there too. So that's going to be limiting. Um, one of the things that my um, a fellow teacher who teaches, I'm, I'm actually taking on the world, the women's history class this year. Um, I kind of brought it to attention to the school. And then when they started it, I didn't have room in my schedule for it. And I'm so <laughs> bummed, but I'm taking it on next semester. So it'll be a semester class, but she, this one teacher had started it um, teaching it. And she has the kids look at the state standards um, for all the classes, world history, American history, 
government. She looks at all the socialized standards and they have to find all the women's standards. And there's like one per class. (laughs) Mention women, move on. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, women worked in factories during World War II. Um, Women's movement in the 1970s. And it's like, that's that's about it. And um, so I think it, it gives... I'd be so curious, like, some of the kids' reactions after doing that self Yeah. Like, I bet. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, and I think they are. So, so I, she told me that, so I'm going to start my class the same way. Love it. And I think, whereas, like, your guys' podcast is saying, like, there's ways that you can bring women into these stories, but I think if they're not specifically listed in a standard – that also a lot of teachers are like, well, then I don't have to do it. You know, it's not in there. So I don't actually have to do it. And then I was talking to my sister-in-law one time. Um, I think I was like, I was actually telling her guys about your podcast to go listen to it. And (laughs) I was saying that one of the hard things is, is there's just not, there's not a lot of resources out there for teachers about how to incorporate women's story into history. Whereas, you know, there, you can find lots of like lessons online or books at the store about, you know, all sorts of things like D-Day or, you know, a story on the founding fathers. It's like you can find these and a lot of teachers, it's like, they don't have time to go out there and research and find information to then pull into their class. That if it's out there and readily available and somebody else has already created it, it's more likely a teacher will, will incorporate it into the classroom versus a teacher having to create it all on their own. Yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, teachers don't have time or they don't know where to look sometimes for things. Well, and so a lot of the, I mean, there's tons of women historians that are out there right now and they're publishing all sorts of amazing things about women. But, you know, in a history class with kids with ADHD or English language learners or whatever, like, I can't be like, go read this book on women's yes. history. Yes. You know, like, that's not how it works. So yeah. you need to have those sort of like packaged lessons like you're talking about. Exactly. And I, and I was saying that if you, I was telling her, I was like, if you could do, and that, that goes for so many other groups too, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. whether it be African-Americans or Hispanic Americans, it's just, yeah. I also think like, educating your students on the state standards also educates them on how to be a community member to stand up against those standards. Mm. So that's some of the things that like Kelsey and I talk about is how we can impact change. And so it's not only highlighting and Kelsey does an amazing job on the website of all these great resources for teachers, but it's then highlighting this for people to understand you don't have to just accept this. You can actually go to your community and make some change so that History books, as our kids get older, are inclusive of all culture and don't just tell one white American narrative. So, you know, that would be ideal. And I think what you guys are doing with that class is awesome. Yeah. That you're showing them this is actually how we make the choices of what you get to have in your education. What a cool idea your colleague had. I love love that way to start the class. Well, and also like talking about the ERA specifically, it kind of strikes me that a topic like the ERA and most of like kind of major events in women's rights and women's history happened in the latter part of a U.S. history class, which Mm -hmm. is about the time of year when I'm like throwing history at students (laughs) as fast as humanly possible. (laughs) So I feel like it's also hard just because of how we structure a course 
Like I would love to teach a class that's like post World War II. Yes, yes. Forward and and it's still history. And then I also think it's hard because like the ERA conflicts with civil rights movement. Like you got to teach that. It, you got to teach about Vietnam. Sorry, like I know you hate yeah. war, but like <laughs> right. And so how do yeah. you can't ignore? I mean, those are all major things going on too. Yeah, how much time and how much time do you spend on an amendment that didn't even get ratified? Right, exactly. Did it pass? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, think about another one that you would even bring up. Yeah, well, none, none that would have gotten that far. I right, mean, right. like there was an attempted child labor amendment, but it didn't make it. Like this one came so close that, like, none of the other ones I think that got proposed have ever made it like that close. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, and to have such a contentious public battle over it. Oh, I think we've wet everybody's palate here. You know, like they're ready to go. So this is a great time to take a break, and we'll be right back. Oh, breaks. (laughs) For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Patrons who give at the $10 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory sticker. We want to sincerely thank some of our patrons for their contributions. Kent and Jamie Heckle from Ohio have been some of our biggest fans from the beginning. Thank you so much for your contribution. And a huge thank you to Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. As an educator, your endorsement and passion for equitable education means a great deal. Thank you for your support and endorsement. You can find a link to our Patreon page on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for Remedial Herstory. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with my friend Mary talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. And in my class, by the time I get to the Equal Rights Amendment, I'm flying through history like a wild woman. Uh, it gets passing mem- mention, but the more I think about it, I feel like that's wrong. And so that's basically why you're here is to fix how I teach history. Um, <laughs> oh, no, Mary. This task. Don't brush my shoulders, I feel like. <laughs> okay, okay, everyone, listen up. Mary's going to fix it all. <laughs> um. The ERA, I feel like, is probably one of the most substantive political battles impacting women's history after women's suffrage. So the fact that it doesn't get decent airtime in my classroom is pretty problematic, and it's kind of the typical prioritization of war and, you know, male-centric, top-down history. So what I did know about the ERA, or rather what textbooks taught me about the ERA, is that it coincided with a rise in conservatism after the 1960s. And voices like Phyllis Schlafly, who uh, many people might know because she was the main character in the Hulu series, Mrs. America, that came out this year. Um, In the show, Schlafly and her gaggle of housewives take on big names in feminist politics like Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, Shirley Chisholm, and it gives you an inside look at the lives that these women had and the movements in the battle to get the amendment ratified. 
So Mary, I figure a lot of our listeners have probably seen the show and maybe at this point know the name Phyllis Schlafly, probably Gloria Steinem, some of those other names I just listed. I mean, Shirley Chisholm, anyone listening should read more about her. Like, badass. She's a boss. Definitely, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So could you start by telling everybody how accurate you found that show to be? I loved it, first of all. (laughs) I thought it was a great show. Um, So many heavy hitters in it. So um, I think as far as like ideas go in the presentation of the arguments for and against it, to me all rang, you know, very true. Um, You definitely see kind of the, the main, you know, the, the reasons why people felt that the amendment was necessary the arguments against it. Um, from what I have read when kind of historians, when they came out, when the, when the show came out, and also I think Gloria Steinem came out and made some comments about the, the show, that um, as far as I think some of the like personal aspects of it, um, arguments between women and some of the more like, you know, behind the scenes look, um, they were saying, did it quite ring true? Um, as far as like, yeah, I think it set up some like, you know, it caused, you know, they create some tension or conflict where maybe it got blown up for the series or, um, so some of the, like the personal made it more dramatic. I think so. Yes. You know, surprise. Um, so I think that kind of got blown up a little bit. And then I did see some criticism among historians about, um, that too much credit was given to Phyllis Schlafly for defeating the ERA. Okay. That really, she, she was definitely a, definitely a big, you know, a big name and, and gained a lot of media attention around her and the movement that she did create, um, the stop ERA movement. But the criticism was that really it wasn't, how do I say this? That they didn't um, necessarily change any opinions to vote no on it. What that they what they did is they gave some men who were unsure about it the permission to vote no for it. Mm. So whereas, like you would have um, some like male legislators who don't want to vote for it. They don't really, they don't like the ERA. They don't like, you know, cause you do, as you kind of said, they're heading toward, a, we're moving towards a little more conservative era by the time the ERA kind of got sent to the States that they were kind of just, they wanted political cover kind of to be able to say no to it. And by having women against it gave them the political cover to feel more comfortable with saying no for it. Yeah. yeah. And it was interesting because in the show, they, I thought, because I didn't know a lot of the names of the other people that were brought in. And I know some of them are fictional, but she has, you know, some anti-abortion people who join her, her group. She's got people from various states. She's got a Southern coalition of women that are, you know, anti- white supremacists, white supremacists <laughs> and, or, you know, anti-segregation or mm-hmm. desegregation or whatever. Let's call them what they are. Yeah. White supremacists. <laughs> Um, so, you know, yeah, so it seemed like there was this, you know, diverse group of people, but 
it's interesting that you say that historians were against that because, or, or sort of thought that they gave her too much credit because literally the textbook that I have, it's like Phyllis Schlafly single-handedly defeated the ERA. Like it was said. Yeah, I actually went and checked um, a prominent kind of women's history book and it, and it said the same thing. So I, I was kind of surprised too, but yeah, there was definitely some historians who came out and said, this, this is, you know, she was important and clearly was key because maybe without her that they, people would have felt that they had to vote for it. Like public opinion polls should support the ERA. So the thing is like, maybe if that movement had started, more politicians would have felt that they had to vote in favor of it. So you, you, you at least have to give her credit. I mean, she was out there with like the media and she got a lot of media attention and she was able to recognize that they like played in the show, her ability to, get people involved and passionate. I mean, very interesting that she had as much power as she did, um, but also just the way that she was able to kind of grow an army, if you will, of other women that felt the same enough to make it, you know, build this cohort of people that, you know, would bring that forward. And that's what I found in my, and when I was researching um, the ERA, I specifically, my thesis was on the ERA in Virginia, but I looked at, you know, clearly the larger picture as well. And that was one of the things that um, historians have said about the ERA and its failure was that by the time it actually did pass Congress, passed Congress with big majority. And so that led to the proponents maybe feeling a sense of false security that, oh, this was easy. This is going to pass, like, this is a no-brainer. States are going to pass this. It's going to become part of the Constitution. And by them not, by proponents kind of thinking it was going to be easy, they didn't organize, but the opposition organized, including Phyllis and other, you know, other groups. And the way that the amendment process works in our country, the harder job is the people who want the change, because you have to get 38 out of 50 states. Whereas if I'm somebody who's opposed, I only have to stop, what, 13? But yeah, so like if you want to make it, if you want to stop change, you have the easier job. You only have to get 13 states to say no. And so if you have really strong opposition and an organized opposition, like Phyllis was able to do, you do have a better chance of preventing the change from happening. So you have to give it in that, she was able to organize and she had a, a strong um, kind of network of like of, um, mailing lists. She, she had already kind of started um, kind of organizing for her other policies that she was working on and her other causes. So well, she like already had a strong email address. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. We're <laughs> capturing emails. It's like, oh. How many emails? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You're sending out the blast. That was interesting <laughs> part of the show because, in you know, in history, she's the woman who stopped the ERA. And in the show, they talk about, you know, her passion for, uh, the you know, it, like international politics. And, you know, she's an expert in missiles and things like that. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Like, I had no idea. Any, like, it's funny how history pigeonholes people, you know, like you, you are known for this. Yeah, well, she, yeah, she's, I mean, if you dig into her, she's fascinating. I mean, whether you love her or hate her, you have to admit that she was a really fascinating person. So many, like, complexity. Because, yeah, she was, um, you know, very, like, that's how she got her career started was foreign policy. And then she kind of wound up, she 
attempted a couple runs, you know, for positions. Yeah, it she it's kind of surprising that she took the position on the ERA that she did as a as a woman who kind of broke some barriers in her time to be a female within politics to help with Miss Island. Mm-hmm. Like, eh, yeah, you're the only seat at the table at the moment. Could you put it in a chair next to you? Like, <laughs> it's kind of interesting that she came back and was like, "Yeah, no, no women are allowed." either like yeah well and it's something that the pro era people would bring up against her quite often of like well you're out there you're traveling around to all these states you're giving all these speeches in front of state legislators you're away from home and all your kids and um they would oftentimes try to to kind of use that against her and she would oftentimes just come back with well i asked my husband if i could do this and that was always kind of her out is like, well, I got permission from my husband to be here today. And she liked to, she actually liked to start a lot of her speeches that way, you know? So. Oh man. Can you, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about some of the arguments for and against the ERA? Like um, just what do you tell your students? Cause I only, I'm only familiar like one or two on each side. So yeah. yeah. Um, So the proponents for the ERA, so particularly coming out, well, the ERA was proposed right after women gained the right to vote. So um, they got the right to vote, 19th Amendment. The first ERA was proposed in 1923 by Alice, like Alice Paul, who was a big woman to fight for the suffrage. So she proposed it. And then it proceeded to like die in Congress for years and years and years and years until um, really then kind of gaining steam from in the 1960s when you have all the social movements going on. So you have kind of a country that's primed, you know, for change or is experiencing a lot of change. And um, then with the women's movements kind of growing, it helped lead to kind of it getting off its off the ground again in Congress. And some of the arguments in favor of it, why this needed to be passed was, well, look at all of the laws that exist that discriminate towards women. So we, right now, at, you know, at least it was felt in the, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s, that there was nothing, there was no guaranteed, no actually specific protection for women in the Constitution other than the 19th Amendment. Mm-hmm. That yes, you have the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, but the Equal Protection Clause, if you're looking at the legislative intent, so some of the arguments are if, if when people look at the legislative intent, which is wh- why was it included, it wasn't really included for women. The, the Equal right. Protection Clause was included for African-Americans. Right. Yeah, former slaves. So if you're going to look at that, it never really was intended for women. So people could use that against it of saying, well, we don't, you know, this doesn't really apply to these laws. Um, but even if you look at it and you say, okay, if, if you're going to look at it and say it does include women, if the 14th Amendment really did protect women, why would we have needed the 19th Amendment? Because it should have protected our right to vote if we were equal. It, we wouldn't have needed the Equal Pay Act. We wouldn't have needed all these other laws that, that in the 1960s, 1970s were now being challenged in court. Then you had, even when they were challenging in court, they were taking cases about women discrimination to court. And the court did start striking down some of these laws, but the court still did not hold sex or 
you know, to discrimination based on sex to that high standard that they were holding race to that. Like if you're in my government class, we talk about like the rational basis test for the strict scrutiny test and race gets held to kind of the, the highest standard um, when it came to the courts of like, if you have a law that discriminates based on race, it, you have to have like the best reason that you're discriminating based on race and pretty much every nothing, nothing meets that standard. So almost no, nothing that discriminates based on race gets upheld, but they never held women or, or sex, sex discrimination to that same standard. Hmm. So that was like actually one of the things like Ruth Bader Ginsburg worked on. She wanted the court to make sex discrimination that strict standard, but the court said, no, they made it this like intermediate, standard. So some of the arguments for the Equal Rights Amendment would be if you had this in the Constitution, then you'd have to hold sex discrimination up to that high standard. Right. So that was kind of the argument for it. The argument against it, well, they they would say, some of the opponents would say, well, we have the 14th Amendment. So an Equal Rights Amendment would really just be redundant, that you don't really need it. We just need to better enforce Right. The 14th Amendment. Like, it's already on the books. We don't need to add something new. Yeah, like understanding how the legislation should be, you know, interpreted. Yeah, just you got to enforce it better. What they did, some of the SAP ERA arguments that they would use were more social arguments against it. That it was going to take, and that's the, the stop, the stop taking our privileges was kind of what the it stood for. They said it would um, cause women to lose kind of their privileges of being women. Some some silly stuff, I would say, like men aren't going to hold doors open for women anymore. <laughs> men won't let women walk through the door first. You know, it's kind of silly, but like cultural things. And But to a lot of people that, I guess those things matter, um, this idea of like women won't be on this pedestal anymore. Yeah. Um, but then even to things like, um, well, it's going to lead to unisex bathrooms because you can't have separate bathrooms because that would violate the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. You um, couldn't be a housewife anymore because if the Equal Rights Amendment passes, um, you are going to, a, a female would have to provide 50% to household income. So therefore, she would have to go out and get a job and couldn't stay at home. Not that the work that she's doing in the home would be reimbursed for 50%. Yes, yes, Don't exactly. Do Don't do that kind of math. Don't do that. No, no. And But the, uh, the, the other side, the proponents would say, you know, like kind of what you said is no, because you could look at it as the, what she's contributing in the house is right. 50%. But Which is it was something that got brought up a lot. And they would use that argument when they would go out and meet with housewives. They're like, well, you're going to have to go to work because you're going to have to provide you know, 50% of the household income. Um, they argued that in narrative, right? Like that wasn't actually part of the, no, no. Uh, And that's the thing is a lot of the opponents arguments when they were challenged, like by, by lawyers, constitutional lawyers, you know, uh, family lawyers, because some of their arguments were, well, uh, men wouldn't have to pay alimony anymore. Um, women would have less chance of getting their children in divorce for child custody. Lawyers and stuff would come out and say like, none of that stuff's 
really going to happen. Like those aren't, those aren't actually going to happen. Women aren't going to be forced out of the home. Women aren't going to, but that didn't, that doesn't hold people's attention as much as, oh my gosh, I'm going to be forced out of my home, you know? And then yes, the, the draft issue was big. Cause remember we're also in Vietnam. We're also in that time frame, So people are having to deal with the draft. And so one of the arguments was women would have, if you're going to treat them equally, women would have to be drafted. And the proponents, the people who were ERA supporters, they conceded. They're like, well, yeah, but that's okay because women should contribute, you know, and go fight for their country too, just like men would have to do. Like that would be okay. But that still like women in combat, I mean, women in combat even today is a, you know, yeah. Some people have a hard time with that. And I mean, that didn't happen until, oh God, it was like the 2000s. At some point, did they officially declare women could be in combat? Yeah. So imagine, it, you know, in 1970. My students regularly point this out. Like, why would women, and it's typically my male students, they point out, like, why would women want to be drafted? And it's hard. I mean, especially like Brooke and I are mothers to sons, you know? So like, I, like part of me is like, why do you want boys to be drafted? Like, I don't yeah. want everybody to be drafted. Yeah. Drafts aren't cool, guys. Drafts aren't cool. But like, this is about like, but I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't. But there are other countries, which you guys probably know more than I would, that they do draft daughters and sons. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, there is that, there is a televised debate where Schlafly sits down with a, with lawyers, Mark and Brenda, um, Fegan fast. They didn't come up in my research, oh. but I came up in the book, like when the show was on and yeah. So they I were both. That, really that cool. debate would be a really cool thing. You can watch yeah. it and yeah. that'd be a really cool thing to show students, have them watch the debate. I don't know. Yeah. And it's kind of like, if you, if you, something that students could probably understand uh, a little bit compared to modern, like what's going on with politics right now is if you think about a lot of times the, the proponents, the supporters of the ERA were bringing up very substantive reasons why they felt it was needed and bringing it back to like the constitution and very kind of concrete um, things that they felt the ERA would, you know, would do, but that's all very law. You know, it's very, sometimes it could be dense and, you know, like not everybody understands kind of like lawyer speak and the opponents were bringing it to more of a base level. Like, yeah, you want your daughters drafted. You want, yeah, you, want you don't want to hear back. Like right. putting out kind of like more common people thing. And it's kind of like, if you think, and that's, it got a lot of attention. So it's kind of like, if you look at like elections nowadays, there's a lot of talk about, you know, in the buildup to election, the media doesn't cover policy as much as it does like what somebody was wearing or like one soundbite, you know? So it's kind of similar to that is, and that frustrated a lot of the proponents because they're like, we are trying to make real arguments. And so like in that debate in the show, like the lawyers are like, we're trying to make real arguments here. And you're coming back with some kind of like cliche right. comment. And that might be the soundbite that got played on the news, you know? So it, I think, was very tricky for the supporters of the ERA to find a way to fight. It's hard to fight the, those kind of, like, folksy elements. 
Yeah, like if you're if you're bringing reason to the table and someone else is bringing fire and knives, you're like, oh. I feel like we just all watched yeah. that a couple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With the presidential <laughs> debate, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe a similar situation. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. One of the things, and this would be interesting again, if you think of it coming on the heels of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. kind of the underlying, you know, not always. And sometimes they would state it out loud, but I think it was kind of an undercurrent because a lot of the states that did not ratify the ERA were Southern states. And some of the arguments were made was, this is another power grab by the federal government. Only because the second part of the amendment says Congress will, or Congress will enforce this amendment or, you know, will enact it. Um, And so they say, look, the federal government's grabbing more power. This is going to take power away from the states. So some of what they were making a states' rights argument, like this, yeah. this is yet another amendment that's going to take power away from the states. Mm-hmm. And they would say it, but of course not say, if you think about, okay, they're just coming off of the heels of what a lot of their southern states were mad about is the federal government's forcing us to desegregate, the, the federal government's forcing us to, you know. Yeah, so there's a lot of big brother coming in and telling us how we're going to run our culture. and how Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that kind of was an undercurrent, I think, through a lot of the Southern states' arguments uh, against the ERA as well. So. Well, we feel for the South, but could you just get in line sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> in the early years in Virginia, it seemed like their, their strategy was like, oh, well, we just need to educate people why the ERA is needed. If we just educate them, they'll clearly get on our side because, like, it just makes sense. And they found, again, that reason doesn't always, isn't the best argument all the time. People don't respond always to like, just kind of rational reasons. Mm -hmm. And so they learned quickly on just trying to educate the legislators, the all-male legislators at the time, um, about the need for the ERA and just to educate the public wasn't, wasn't cutting it, wasn't doing, doing enough. And so about halfway through the fight, that's when they switched to more legislative politics of, okay, well, if these people in the legislature aren't listening, we've got to get new people in the legislature. Hmm. And so they switched to kind of trying to find candidates who would support the ERA, trying to donate money, raise, raise money for those candidates, campaign for those candidates. But all of that takes much longer you know, and it's harder because you got to get those people known and, you know, whereas incumbents usually win, you know, once you're in office, you tend to stay in office. And so it's hard to get challengers against those people. So they started to have some success for that. You know, they started to get some, some people elected, but their time ran out, you know, like they weren't able to kind of make that transition fast enough to make it really, you know, effective. Plus the committee system in Virginia, um, they had a unique committee system where everything had to go through like this one committee um, who were led by conservatives. So for most of the time, Virginia just flat out, we're like, it's just going to sit here in committee. It's going to die in committee every year. We're not even going to bring it to the floor for debate or discussion. It just, it was kind of fighting this one powerful committee in Virginia. So that was interesting. So uh, 
Just but, this year, though, the state of Virginia passed the ERA. You know, that was so exciting. That was they're like the 38. <laughs> so they're the 38th state to pass it. But it means nothing because <laughs> the ERA ran out of its timeline, right? It had a certain amount of time that they had to get it passed, yeah. get it ratified. There's a, there's a debate about this, actually. Um, because, and so it's it's kind of working its way through two systems right now, Um it is being challenged in court to say, yes, it counts. We got our 38 states. It counts. It should be part of the Constitution. And then they're also working on, you know, just trying to possibly get it proposed and start the process over again. But the I argument is... This might be a dumb question, but does that mean that every state has to vote on it again? Yes. If they, so if what they is, do the second one. What is the timeline that they have they had to get it done? Well, so and that's, that's, that's the part that's being challenged in court because... In the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't say anything about putting a time limit. When the Constitution talks about the amendment process, there's nothing mentioned about a time limit. In fact, the 27th Amendment was proposed um, in the original Bill of Rights, I believe, like in the 1700s, and it didn't get approved until like the 1990s. What? Oh, 15 years went by. Turns out you guys is a start over. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, like, that one, so, like, again, that happened. It sat there and... But so the argument is the timeline that was attached by Congress to the ERA and other amendments apparently, you know, in the more modern era have had time limits placed on them. Um, what do we know why? I don't, I don't know what the, I guess they figure if they're not ratified in X amount of time. Like they don't have to talk about it anymore. Well, honestly, like the stop ERA movement was able to kind of sneak in and mobilize when they weren't expecting it. So I wonder if it's to sort of stop that kind of like, you know, people think it's dead, so they're not ready to fight it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So for whatever reason, they added these time limits. And so they, um, the argument is that that wasn't, basically the time limit was unconstitutional that the time limit shouldn't matter because that's not actually part of the amendment process. So the time limit itself was unconstitutional. So therefore it could still be part of the constitution now that there are 38 states who ratified Mm -hmm. it. So that's, that's an interesting, like something to watch because it's, it's, yeah. Get it done. Yeah, yeah. what well, makes the new Supreme Court nominee a very important person, knowing that amendments like that are going to be mm. coming up. Yeah. We can't talk about our girl Amy right now. Yeah. <laughs> so much drama. So much drama there. Oh, Phyllis and Amy. Mm-hmm. I felt really stupid watching that show because I teach history and I'd never heard of this conference. I had never heard of the spirit of Houston and the document that was produced. And, um, and granted, like I wasn't alive. So there's, how dare you, you know, but (laughs) at the same time, like this is a major moment in 50% of the population's lives. And I have no idea that this exists. And, um, so that's embarrassing moment number one for me, but it made me think I recently learned that Seneca falls in retrospect has kind of been blown up as this big moment Mm -hmm. in history. But like at the time it wasn't perceived that way. You think that the spirit of Houston, this, this document with all the things that they want Carter to address. Do you think that in its time, it was as big as the show made it out to be? Or do you think that, it was 
similar to Seneca Falls, where it was kind of like a blip. A blip. I think it was big to the people who were involved in it. Like, I think for, for women who were actively involved in the women's movements, it probably what it see it probably seemed at the time like it was going to be big. And they really held like um like hope that like, you know, like this is this is our moments. We're we're gonna create this this document of what, what needs to be fixed. And maybe, you know, there was some, okay, this is, you know, this is gonna happen. Yeah. So but I think it's kind of like most most Americans are just really not engaged in politics, you know. So no, to the people, that's not true. If you think about this in nineteen like seventy seven, the same was probably true. People in general probably were not following it if they didn't, you well, know, and the they didn't have active. Yeah, like it's not like social media back then, or there was like there's maybe you know five or six national papers at the time and then the rest were local and unless you mm-hmm. live in Houston probably wasn't covered or it was like a little blurb you know here and probably just got you know a brief mention on the on the you know national news because they're not going to fill an entire you know they didn't have cable news networks yeah like we have cable news networks so they're not going to spend the entire hour of the news talking about talking about Houston isn't that the plight of the the history teacher is getting <laughs> citizens walking out yep. of that classroom who are going to engage in politics and, and local yeah. government? Mary, thank you so much. That was incredibly enlightening. I feel like I learned a lot about <laughs> the ERA that I didn't really grasp. And I, it's really interesting just to hear you talk about the different styles of, mm. of debate and of argument that they're making because... Yeah, I mean, we want our students to be kind of intellectual and to be able to listen to those heady arguments and really understand what's being said. But That's, there's a lot there. Like, like I, I was sitting here, obviously, not a history teacher. I'm like, man, there is a lot to this story, but it would be a great way to teach students around legislature and how things, like, instead of watching, what's that, the cartoon show? Yeah. The bill, the bill, bill on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like all right. I learned nothing from that other than there's a catchy tune and a, and a little bill, right? Shape, but I also feel in. like it says a lot about <laughs> rhetoric, right? Big time. Like, like what is because you would think a bill that's titled Equal Rights would be like a no brainer, but you're like move it along. Next but then people were like, oh, so everything's equal now, you know? And it's kind of like, well, so Mary, I have one last question for you. Yes. How do we get this in the classroom? So the ERA, <laughs> where are you putting this in currently? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. So when I am in, when I teach my government class, so for government teachers out there, I do think, as kind of Kelsey said, this is a great way to look at the legislative process or maybe Brooke said it. I can't remember. What one of you said that like, this is a great way. There we go. Brooke definitely said it for the record. <laughs> there we go. Uh, about how do you like, Again, yeah, that you can watch the Schoolhouse Rock, which I do show it. I do highly That's enjoy the Schoolhouse Rock song. But this is like I haven't, I had not read, reread, or read my thesis since I turned it in. You know, back in two thousand and seven. Um, so I was like, I'm going to do a quick read of it, and that was before I taught government. So I'm flipping through it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they could like so many of like our vocab words. It's a good example of that of how like the amendment process works. And another kind of standard that I talk about it a lot, too, is when we talk about 
like just the amendment process. The amendment process is difficult and it's difficult for a reason. The founding fathers wanted it to be difficult. And, you know, so we kind of bring it in for there as well. And then, yeah, in American history, I always talk about it when we talk about, I, I kind of try to do a broader um, week in my American history class on social movements in the 1970s. So we kind of, we look at women one day, we look at Native Americans kind of social movement in the 1970s another day, and then we look at uh, Hispanic Americans on another day. So we kind of look at it from, we just finished the civil rights movement, now look at all the other ones that kind of came on its heels. So we talk about it as far as part of that, that bigger social movement um, that kind of existed in the 1970s of everybody trying to get more equality and more rights um, and more living up to the promise that America, you know, the ideals of America. Very cool. That's awesome. And so Kelsey, do we have a lesson plan on the website? Yeah. So I want to make one using that that debate, because I think it speaks Mm -hmm. to what you're talking about. And um, I think, you know, history teachers do a really good job of, um, especially world history teachers, like hero or villain. And Mm -hmm. Phyllis Schlafly would be a really cool, like, person (laughs) to address that question with. Um, And, and get kids to kind of question her. And you could do the same thing for Gloria Steinem, for any of the, any of the women that are, that are, um, so yeah, so we're going to have uh, a couple op- uh, a couple resources coming up for teachers on our website. Awesome. Exciting. Exciting. And again, kind of going back when we were at the beginning where we said, you know, if more races, resources are out there for teachers, exactly. the more likely they are to incorporate these topics in their classes. So great. Oh, Mary, thank you so yes, much. Thank you so much. You're we welcome. Really- Thanks for asking me. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, this was great. I love when Kelsey gets a chance to nerd out with other teachers. It's very entertaining. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> so thank you for helping in that, in that this evening. But um, no, this was great. Glad I could be of assistance. <laughs> it was perfect. But, you know, I think to do that plug too, the Hulu you know, show is a really great resource, but there's so much out there that you guys have um, mm-hmm. that, you know, I think teachers can grab onto and, and cover a lot of different spaces. I mean, the more one piece, the more recent it is, the better. I also, I have a couple resources up there already about, um, Shirley Chisholm because she's, I mean, she's, she's in our house. So, um, those are not ones I made, but those are up there as well. Mary, this is amazing. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to remedial her story. The other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.